Rebecca and I broke out of our Upper West Side apartment recently and went for a drink at the Gin Mill on Amsterdam and 80th Street, great neighborhood bar, which in normal times has a speakeasy and a jazz band. It was late afternoon, sitting outside by the sidewalk, many walkers wearing masks, some not. When a non-masker approached, we warned each other and whipped up our face covering. Sure, we were taking a chance with COVID-19, but, you know, one has to live a little. Down the block from the gin mill is Lucerne Hotel, now housing the homeless. Recently, nearly 300 men had become a part of our Upper West Side neighborhood. Now here's the point. Why I want to explore the homeless issue in our podcast. We were out enjoying the afternoon at a bar, and I was feeling a bit nimby-ish. You know, not in my backyard. I just wanted to enjoy the moment. And here before me were outsiders ruining my expensive drink and quesadilla. I feared one of them would approach and ask for money. My God. Okay, these were my feelings. Many of my neighbors have similar feelings. And I knew that these feelings and thoughts were not healthy. And I needed to consider my knee-jerk thinking. And so here and now... We are going to talk about these other Upper West Siders with community leaders who are seeking effective ways to help our neighbors, both the homeless and the homed. I know when I was on the streets, like people would make eye contact and just smile and nod ahead. That was better than any money they could give me because I was seen being homeless is you are very invisible. If I need to, you know, take on any, you know, Hood grannies, like you say. (laughs) That's what he called our counter protesters the other day. He said, said, you guys have some tough grannies on the Upper West Side. The grannies, they just came out and they were just like hardcore. They had me and my fellow residents shaking in our boots. With us today is Corin Lowe, co-founder of Upper West Side Open Hearts, a local organization committed to supporting the homeless residing at various Upper West Side hotels. Their goal is to assist shelter residents and their service providers in getting the resources they need and the care they deserve. Joshua Parkin is founder of Help New York City, a multi-neighborhood organization with a wide variety of programs who help New Yorkers in need with food, clothing, housing, financial, and health assistance. At one time, Joshua was homeless. And a homeless hero is an everyman who presently resides at the Lucerne Hotel and is a fierce media spokesperson for the homeless in our city. And uh, I'm Alan Winson, and uh, that was Rebecca McKean, my co-host on Barcore Radio. And we're so um, happy to have you. Uh, welcome, Corinne and Joshua and, and the homeless hero. And I thought maybe we could start with Corinne and Josh, uh, if I may call you Josh. If you give us give us Thank an you. idea, maybe um, in not, not a lot of detail, but kind of a, a beginning um, primer in how in your story, how you got involved with helping your fellow New York Cityers in this way. Why don't we start with Josh? So, as Rebecca said earlier, um, I have lived experience with street homelessness, shelter homelessness, and I currently reside for the past ten years. Actually, it'll be ten years. November 20th this year in mental health supported housing, independent supported housing. And the way it came around is I've always been an activist, advocate since I was a teenager in the 90s. 
I did a lot of advocacy around um, getting LGBT youth included in the hate crimes legislation that was going through at the time and working on national councils and everything. And then that turned into advocacy in general for LGBT. And then um, I became homeless and I worked in the entertainment industry. And through my homelessness, I, I struggled by connecting to services and with my own health, mental health concerns and substance misuse. And um, going to the shelter system was a struggle in connecting to services. So I retired from the entertainment industry in 2000, January 2019 and went into mental health counseling as a peer specialist. And um, about four years ago, my friends in recovery kept on asking me, Josh, where's the best rehab? Like I, I turned into the Yelp of rehabs because I had been around the block. <laughs> and it, I had a text message that I would just copy and paste to my friends in recovery that I would send out. And then that became too much. And then that turned into a Google document. And then from Google document, that became too big because I was tired. I'm like, just go to this darn website. So I started joshp.nyc and that website really got big. And it was only meant to be like friends and people in recovery, like third or fourth degree of association from me. And I was working at a wonderful company and my manager said, Josh, you really need to scale this up. Like you're putting all this work into it and this needs to be available to people. So now it's helpnyc.info, that's our web address. And it has exploded over the last year. I got that domain October 16th of 2018. So this month we turned two years old. So you're really, Until, you're really a connector. You're a Yeah, we, we a are an advocate and a connector. Um, and we really want to help um, people connect to low barrier services. And we want to hear more about Help New York City and th thank you for uh, getting us started on learning about the great service that you're doing. We were just joined by Helen Rosenthal, city council member, 6th District. And th thank you, Helen, for joining us. Thank it's great you. to be here and to be among very good friends. Uh, we were just asking um, Josh and now Corinne Lowe about your work and what, uh, how you got started as an advocate for the needy and the homeless. So tell us your story. So I am a college professor. I work at University of Pennsylvania. I'm an economist at the Wharton School and I'm an Upper West Side mom. And I wasn't any kind of community activist until very recently when these temporary hotel homeless shelters came into my neighborhood. And, you know, my first thought was, okay, how can we help? What What's needed, you know? And then I started hearing on these like Facebook moms groups that I was in, you know, oh gosh, this is awful. And I saw this and I saw that. And here's a picture of somebody at this. And I was horrified because, you know, this is a crisis. We're in a time of crisis and there is a need, you know, to house people safely and to de-densify the congregate shelters so that COVID wasn't going to spread. And instead of thinking, you know, okay, that's great that our neighborhood can be of service and the empty hotels that, you know, are not doing anything can be of service. People were thinking, this is so horrible for me, who's clearly the victim, you know, when you're talking about people who are unhoused and are exposed to enormous risk and, you know, who live very difficult lives. And there were people in high rises sort of complaining that they were being made uncomfortable. And so I thought it was very important to just show strong 
vigorous vocal support for those shelters. And so, you know, I got involved with some other Upper West Side moms who were trying to do the same thing. The first thing we did was just went and we wrote chalk messages out in front of the shelters, which sounds like a small thing, but it was our way of saying, you're hearing so much hate in our neighborhood and we want you to know that somebody is looking out for you here. We want you here. We say, you are welcome here. Everybody's welcome in the Upper West Side. We are glad to have you. You know, I brought some care packages and then I started talking to the shelter providers to see how else people could donate. They mentioned, oh, you can ship stuff directly to the hotels. So I went home and set up Amazon wish lists for the shelters. And a couple Zoom calls later, next thing I knew, I was basically running this organization as a second job in addition to my very full-time job as a professor and my two kids. So you're you're teaching at home now? Are you? Uh, yeah. You still with the University of Pennsylvania? Yeah. Right. Uh, so I mean, thank you for being here because otherwise, I guess you'd be out there over a regular semester. Well, I, yeah. So I commute from New York City, you know, normally, but right okay. now, I guess I'm putting that commute time into you know some other pursuits since I don't have to commute right now. Okay, Helen, let's get you into this, and I I I, I am I do have a question for the homeless hero. So just, just hold here. What do you think about these two young people? Oh, they're my heroes. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've just gotten to know Josh. He's terrific. And I've enjoyed working with him. Corinne is just, you know, an amazing advocate who pour, it, it all pours out from her heart. That's what drives her to work as hard as she does. I am confident her students are lucky to have her as a teacher because she's gonna do everything she can to make sure those students understand the material she's presenting. Um, she's so clear in her thinking and the way she articulates the arguments. It's just been an inspiration working with Corinne and you know, Shams, the homeless hero, I, you know, I'm in awe of you. Also, somebody who has so much to say, has incredible insights about what's going on in New York City and how people are being treated and what impact that has on those individuals. So it's just been a delight getting to know the folks, all of whom have come together around something that is no longer an issue, except that somebody made it an issue. I mean, what's remarkable to me about this whole situation is that after everything had truly calmed down on the West Side and new ideas had been set in motion, Corinne and her group, Open Hearts, had found volunteers to teach resume writing courses and find people who would donate gently, use clothing for um, job, job interviews. And after Goddard Riverside even found an, enough donors so they could open up their space for the the men at the Lucerne with programs every day, six days a week. Everything was going swimmingly and truly out of the blue. 
the mayor made this decision to move the men out of the Lucerne Hotel to another, well, at first he, he wanted to move them into a shelter and displace everyone in that shelter. And thank goodness that idea was, we got rid of that idea. That was truly stupid, disastrous. And, uh, but so now where the mayor has said that the men who are currently living in a hotel is that they need to move to another hotel. And the reason being because, you know, Randy Mastro picked up the phone and called the mayor and the mayor got on the phone and, you know, like that, like that made this decision to move everyone out without having the facts. I am still bewildered by this decision because there is no sensical reason to move the men out. You know, I am trying very hard. Corinne is like a pit bull and and it's wonderful to be on her side. You know, we are not letting go of this. And we're looking for any way that this can end well for everyone. So I'm mystified by what the mayor is doing. Uh, There's really just absolutely no explanation. And I think the thing that's most striking, especially now when we're at the end of his mayoralty, is that it reflects the fact that at the end of the day, he doesn't have a plan for people who are unsheltered. He just doesn't have a plan. If he had a plan, then there, you know, you have guiding principles, you, you know, there's a reason for what you're doing. But what the mayor has done by making this decision is basically say that the problem is the homeless individuals. When in truth, the problem is his policies, which have resulted in people becoming homeless and his inability to address that issue with more affordable housing. So at the end of this mayor's tenure, he's making these nonsensical decisions based on nothing that is true in reality. I don't know how else to articulate it, but it's just so painful and disappointing and damaging and unnecessary, just unnecessary. All this disruption for nothing. So anyway, I continue to find that mon- mind boggling. It continues to keep me up at night and and uh, working with, with who you see on this screen, we're gonna, we're gonna try to fix this. Um, yes, that, that, thank you for, uh, I mean, Helen, you've kind of given us sort of a, a big picture of uh, not only the problem, but the politics behind that problem. Uh, we wanted to kind of focus on the travails of the men who were uh, uh, moved from the Bowery to the Upper West Side of the Lucerne. And there's more than just one Upper West Side hotel with, with homeless people. And so I wanted to turn to the, uh, to the homeless hero uh, and ask about um, your experience of this move. 
and you're 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 now residing at the Lucerne Hotel. Can you just describe what what is it like living there, and how how is it different from where you were before? We started at the congregate shelters, and to uh, let me be frank, my my role in advocating for myself and my fellow resident began in the congregate shelters. Um, I consider those shelters to be drug dens. I consider them to be breeding grounds for violence. The shelters were unsafe before COVID and got even more unsafe during COVID. So just COVID-wise, we were devoid of the basic things they said could prevent COVID. Social distancing was impossible there. Uh, We didn't have sanitizer, soap, or anything like that. And people weren't following the the, uh, CDC's protocol recommendations. So it was an extremely dangerous dangerous uh, environment. And I myself got uh, became a victim of COVID um, and and ended up going to a quarantine hotel. How are you doing now? Yes. Yeah, I almost died, too. Um, So thank God I'm still here to, to talk about it. Yeah. But um, it was a horrifying experience. And what I was ex- seeing from, from the beginning was that the city had no, they, they had no idea of how to deal with this or how to keep us safe. When everybody was told to be quarantined, they still maintain a pro- policy that told us to go into the streets at eight o'clock in the morning. And I was like, it makes no sense. We're the only ones in the streets. Everybody else is told to go indoors. So it was like a total disregard for our humanity. And, and it put us in extreme uh, 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 unsafety. So when you look at the numbers and you see that um, the amount, and, and somebody please correct me correct me if I'm, if I'm misstating this, but the amount of the mortality rate during that, the height of the COVID epidem- epidemic uh, crisis, the height of the mortality rate in the shelters was 67% higher than the overall rate in New York City. So that, that's an alarming number, just, and that, I think, magnifies how, how dangerous the shelters was. So after 21 days of being quarantined, and, and, and they wanted to send me back after the first seven, but I had to call throughout the entire city to get that reversed. Um, even though they said that it took 14 days before you might be okay. Then after 14 days, I'm telling them, look, I'm still not okay. They still want to send me back. So I had to fight for another seven days. And by the seventh day, the CEO of the agency that ran the quarantine site came and negotiated with me. And I, I didn't want to get any, you know, into any trouble or anything. So I decided to go back. I felt a little bit better. So I'm also one of those COVID long haulers, you know, so that's a whole nother thing. Going back into the shelter, the conditions were not better since I was in quarantine. They got worse. Uh, the things I was very vocal and and very, you know, and that's probably how I got it because I was I was putting myself out there to make sure to, that the protocols were followed. The security didn't follow with the the staff didn't follow it. Like nobody really followed it or knew how to deal with it. So when I got back, it was worse. It was like everybody was getting infected. The same way it normally happened with the flu in the in the shelters, it was happening with COVID. So fortunately, we ended up getting the option 
to go to the hotels. And remember what I'm saying, option. Because the option was you could stay here or you can go to the hotel. And while many people chose to go to the hotel, there were some, which was the Washington Jefferson Hotel on 51st and 8th, 8th Avenue. There were many, to my surprise, who said, I'm not going to the hotel. They're struggling with substance abuse. And they were saying, look, or, or substance disorder. They said, I can't do that because it's too restrictive. And I know it's just a setup for me. I'm going to end up having problems. So I, it, I, I didn't understand it because I thought that, that, you know, having your own room or, you know, being in a different situation might be better. But we're dealing with substance use disorder, which is very complex. So I understand. So um, the Washington Jefferson was okay. It was good, actually. It's better than the shelter. The one problem that I saw was that there were no programs, not one. I am in the outpatient program under Project Renewal called the Recovery Center. So every day I leave, I go there. But the vast majority are not attached to the Recovery Center. And then there were no on-site programs at the hotel. And pretty soon, the same activities that I saw outside of the uh, congregate shelter, I saw that in the area of the Washington Jefferson. So that was a problem for me because most of these are my fellow residents. I care about them and I was watching them struggle and they, they, you know, they, I see them getting worse in their addictions and stuff. So I tried to spend time, you know, hey, look, can we do this? Can we do that? And it kind of, it, it, none of that was really being heard. And so I started speaking on certain things that, that were psychologically not good for us, meaning, um, the manner in which we were being treated and uh, the way we were being fed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when it was announced that we were going to move, it built a whole lot of anxiety in many of us because we thought we were okay. And the, now the word was that we were becoming a problem in the neighborhood. So I reached out to uh, the West Side Rag and I, I articulated that, look, we're going to have to do something because there could be another, there's going to be a problem if things are not done beforehand. The move came so quick that I, I, I didn't see how they would be able to properly prepare us to come to the new uh, location on, here on the Upper West Side. And just as I predicted, problems did happen. And, and almost immediately, you could see that there was gonna, the problem was only going to get worse. So there were no programs on site in the beginning. There was no infrastructure set up. And I think the number one reason why there were problems was because of that. The computer system here was not set up. Without the computers, you have several problems. If you have a good neighbor policy and a client violates the good neighbor policy, you can't transfer that client. You can't even write up a report that goes up the chain on that client because you don't have your computers. The, the decision to transfer a client is done only by DHS. And then the other problem with that is with the shelters being empty, you have to really search for the proper place to place the client 
because you, if you send them to another, another hotel, it might be the same issue or worse issue. So you have to look around and that's a, something that DHS does. So for the first two or three weeks, there was no computers on site, not giving us the opportunity or rather project renewal, the opportunity to correct situations with some of the clients who should be who should have been placed in another facility to begin with. So the what's it happened. like now at the Lucerne? How is it now? Oh, good question. So now after those three weeks, Thank goodness open hearts came in. Wow. Thank goodness that they stepped up. And, and let me say this. Thank not, goodness not the, the mayor. other side. The mayor uh-huh. did, the, the, not the mayor. The mayor didn't oh, step no, up. The mayor dropped the ball on this one. Someone was in charge, but these men are so dehumanized and there's a number to them that- No one cares. Yeah, there is a person in charge and that is Mayor Bill de Blasio. Mm. Like, so, so let me say this. When I advocated, and I say this all the time, I didn't just advocate for us, the residents. I also advocated for the community. I spoke to the head of security at Project Renewal saying, hey, look, we got to make sure this thing is run tight and it's good. I don't want to move around no more. I spoke to Project Renewal and said, look, you know, we got some people that are struggling. We got to do something about it. Right? So because the... I don't like to use the term the other side, um, but because those who were vocal and looking for safer streets, so to speak, because they jumped out there like that, it put the spotlight on us and it put the spotlight on issues, which I was able to go and say, see, I told you, (laughs) see, you need to do this. And in the same time period, open hearts came in to combat that to my surprise and Corinna tell you when I first came across them, it was through the chalk on the floor. I didn't see them put it, but when I came out the building and I saw the chalk, the first thing I thought was what the hell, what are they doing? What are they saying? What are these people writing about us? And the security guard said, wait, wait, says, are you reading this? And what did it say? What did it say? It says, we love you. We welcome you. Everyone should have a home. And I'm looking like, oh my God, what? Who? What happened? And they said the kids were out here this morning. So as I, we're talking, people are exiting the building and they join the conversation. And I see men saying, I was crying this morning. Like I was in tears. So I'm like, what? And so when I looked up open hearts, what is open hearts? And I reached out to them. And if Corinne, I don't know if you remember this, but I said, hey, I appreciate this, but writing chalk on the ground is is not going to be, it's not going to do it for us. We need a whole lot more than this. I was being critical, but immediately they responded. And their response was, hey, thank God you reached us. We would like to talk to some of you guys that are, are from the thing. I'm like, what? So they said, hey, can I, can you meet with our, our you know, one of our people, Amanda? So I'm like, oh God, what? what Oh, all right, I'll meet her. So we want to we want to hear about all the things that the open heart is doing. But I wanted to ask too, though, um, any of you, what? Uh, who are the people at the Lucerne? Who are they? Are are they all? Are there? Are they? Are there some people with mental drug first, issues, mental health issues, and drug uh, addiction problems? Or first of all, mm-hmm. they're humans. They're our neighbors. They're part of our community. 
and they matter. And most importantly, they're human and they're a New Yorker. I guess I would turn it around to everybody on this call. Anybody to say in your family, are there people that have mental health issues and and substance use disorders? Of course there are. There are in any community. And that doesn't take away from anybody's right to care and compassion. What that requires is services and treatment and stability. And so, you know, we've been seeing that, you know, one of our, one of our members, Amanda, who, you know, who met with, with Shams during that first meeting, you know, she treats the kids of Upper West Side community members, and she sees these same issues, you know, um, in the teenagers that live in this community full time. But the difference is, if they stumble and trip up, they have people there to catch them, right? And that's what is so infrequently afforded to those coming from a background of poverty and those in black and brown communities. And that's what we wanted to change and what we feel we have done a lot to change by actually building that community safety net here together with the shelter residents. We've we've seen images in the news. I know I've seen Helen there and I've gone by Lucerne uh, and on the sidewalk, we do have the chalk with wonderful, colorful, you know, images and messages there, which must make the people there, the 283 men who are there, uh, feel a bit better. But does Upper West Side Open Hearts, do you do anything else besides that? I, I'm, not de- I'm not denying that that's not important. Like I said, that was one of the first things we did because we felt like it was important to very visibly, you know, welcome people. And I think, and Shams has spoken beautifully, the fact that sending that message, you know, does does mean something. But of course, you know, then we what we really wanted to do was provide real community care and it was our job to find out what was actually needed and how we could do that so we talked to the shelter providers we found out what residents actually needed which is probably not very typical to do to talk to the well well, what i was saying was that in the meeting with amanda within 20 minutes she offered to provide free 12-step meeting, something that didn't exist with the shelter. She also to, she offered to provide therapeutic programming to the shelter with licensed people from the community. So that's how that got started up, from that very first meeting within 20 minutes of them asking, what did you need? And then the connection was made with the shelter providers to get us additional services and stuff like that. Right. And so now on a weekly basis, you know, with the Lucerne, we have a program going on pretty much every day of the week. So that might be spiritual walk and talks where we have local faith leaders come and take the residents out on socially distanced sort of outdoor faith services that are non-denominational and open to all residents. Um, you know, we have the volunteer-led 12-step meetings. We have an, a weekly exercise class, a weekly meditation session in the park going on. We've, you know, started these resume workshops. We're doing, we do free stores where we come and, you know, bring donated items and residents can shop from them and pick out exactly what they want rather than sort of just having a bunch of donations thrust on them that might not be what they're actually looking for. Um, And we do all of this, you know, all these public events like the free stores together with our kids and our families. And I think that's so important because we've heard a lot of, you know, what about the kids, you know, from people who are against the shelters. And I think those of us who have actually taken the time to get to know shelter residents with our kids and with our families would say, this is a beautiful opportunity to teach our children about service and about, you know, being one with 
community members who might be from different backgrounds with us and about our responsibility as those with privilege and good fortune to extend ourselves to assist others who may not have had that same good fortune. So we all feel that this has been an opportunity for our children to become the type of humans that we want to be raising. And it's been an opportunity for us to form really deep and transformational relationships, you know, that I think anybody could benefit from. So do the, do the gentlemen that are at the um, Lucerne, do they, uh, are, do they voluntarily go to these programs or are they required to? And what, and if they volunteer, if they voluntarily go, how much, how many of them participate? Everything is voluntary. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's there for people. This is something Shams and I have been talking about a lot, though, is that there is a need to develop that trust and to actually engage people to get them to take up the programs because they might feel, oh, you know, what is this? And, you know, is this something I can trust? And is this sort of there's a lot of this kind of carceral mindset in the shelter system where everything is like there's an incentive to get you to go and get your COVID test. And there's a rule about this. It's a carrot and stick all the time. Right. And, you know, we wanted to build relationships through care and love that make people then actually want to do that. And that's what we've seen over the course of doing this is that, you know, in our first couple programs, it was kind of us out there doing it. And there wasn't really that much um, participation or, you know, interaction with the shelter residents. And as we kept showing up and kept coming back, we felt that that relationship of trust developed. And so that's something that Shams and I have really been talking a lot about is how to bring that into how the shelter operators themselves operate. Because, um, you know, Shams can tell you that there's a lot of wonderful programming that Project Renewal actually has at its off-site recovery center program. How do you engage the residents to actually get them to trust and to open themselves up to take advantage of that? And that's something that needs to be done, you know, with an approach that is about human kindness and connection and getting to know people rather than kind of treating people like numbers in a spreadsheet to be managed. And so here we have uh, uh, this opportunity to become blessed uh, by, by doing the right thing. Something I'd like to add to that, the carrot and the stick mentality of DHS, is that every time the men of the Lucerne have moved, their housing process restarts. So everyone is saying, let's get these men housing, but we don't want them in our neighborhood. So if they move from the Lucerne to the Radisson, that for many of them may are the fourth time they have moved shelters. And if project renewal doesn't follow them to the Radisson down on Wall Street, they have to start the housing process over again. Because the way DHS is incentivized the private shelter operators is that they get a, a reward, a financial reward, if they place someone. Now, some of these men have vouchers already, and they're starting to get services, uh, starting the housing search. They will retain that voucher, but they may have a new housing specialist when they get to the Radisson. Actually, on this one, Josh, yeah. uh, Project Renewal is going to move with the men. Okay, great. The I, didn't, so I didn't know that update. There will be continuity there, but you know, to the point of these decisions being made overnight, you know, 
what Project Renewal is trying to do this time is to set things up at the Radisson. So when they move in, you won't have the confusion that Shams was talking about for when they moved into the Lucerne. The computers will be there. The printers will have been set up so they can really do their work. But it shows how Mayor de Blasio's actions here are so counterproductive because yeah. if the problem was the disruption in moving into this community, then why would you disrupt once again, just as everything was sort of starting to click into place and we've really built this strong community shelter relationship that has been recognized as a model for how community shelter relationships should work going forward. So our our work was given the Compassionate Communities Award by the Coalition for the Homeless. Project Renewal has said this is a brand new model that they want to put into place in their other shelter sites. And so why would you see that starting to form and finally starting to coalesce and take shape and then be like, oh, the solution is clearly to uproot this shelter again and dump it into a different community where yeah. none of that exists. Yeah. We have so many wonderful community organizations in New York City and on the Upper West Side. So much good work is being done. And I'm wondering, where is the city council in this? Um, is, it, is it all the pri- you know, uh, community organizations or is the city council involved also in, uh, in, in these programs and and helping these men and women and children? Uh, I think, um, you know, when COVID hit, it was leadership through the city council that got the mayor to consider moving the men out of um, congregate shelter. And uh, Steve, my colleague, Steve Levin uh, from Brooklyn, he was the one who wrote legislation that many of us signed on to, which would have required the mayor to move people out of congregate shelter and into um, hotel rooms for the duration of COVID for everyone's safety. And we were negotiating that bill. I was actually part of the negotiations on that. Um, and then lo and behold, the mayor did it without legislation. So we didn't have to move forward on that front. You know, I think the city council wants there to be enough affordable housing so people who have vouchers can get an apartment. Um, and we just don't have that right now. I mean, one of the things that surprised me most when, um, as I've been meeting with men at the Lucerne Hotel is that they actually not only have a voucher, but have a job situation so they could maintain their life independently. And yet they can't find anywhere, any landlord who will take the voucher Therefore, they're stuck inside this um, uh, homeless shelter, which is now temporarily housed in a hotel. But again, you know, it's only by talking with the men myself that we're able to get to the heart of the problem to know and think about what policies need to change going forward. I mean, I think the the problem with what happened here is the miscarriage of justice where 
a lawyer is hired by some people who is a very well-connected lawyer, you know, really knows how to play the insider game um, and, you know, can pick up the phone and Mayor de Blasio will answer his call. Who are we talking about? That's the one you mentioned before. That's I was going to ask. I don't I didn't understand uh, who that was. And what, Andrew what, Mastro, who was uh, hired by the, peop, the okay. people on the Upper West Side who raised $150,000 on GoFundMe to hire Randy Mastro to try to displace Project Renewal. And obviously, if you're the mayor with sort of a vision for homelessness policy overall, if you hear that a you know rich, predominantly white community is hiring a lawyer to try to kick out vulnerable black and brown New Yorkers, you say, no, that's not how I run my city, right? Um, because obviously doing that would empower every community that doesn't want a homeless shelter or a low-income housing development to say, oh, this is the playbook. I just need to hire the best lawyer. We're seeing exactly that in the downtown now where they want to now move the Lucerne residents because Mayor de Blasio sent the message, oh, they weren't good enough for the Upper West Side. We're moving them down to your neighborhood. So, so how they can we- started a GoFundMe and they're hiring a lawyer now to try to block it. Yeah, let, 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 let's address that because this is an important part of this conversation. Um, it's quite evident that many Upper West Siders are angry and scared. They're, they're angry because they're scared that men with drug and mental health problems are housed at Lucerne and other Upper West Side hotels. The West Side RAG has done an excellent job in reporting uh, all of the things that have been going on uh, at, you know, in, on the Upper West Side and the pushback from our community. And I was taking a look at the comments in the, uh, you know, the West Side RAG and... Um, these are these are our neighbors also, uh, and I have a number of examples. I'll just I'll just read a couple of short ones. Wendy Wu asked uh, the Gail Brewer consider the elderly, disabled tenants who lived peacefully at Lucerne for decades until 282 homeless, mentally ill, chemically addicted men were moved in. Blah 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 blah. Right. Adam, in his uh, and, reply. And for one second, Alan. Yeah. I spoke with the men who live at the Lucerne. Yeah. The elderly men. They're fine. Right. I'm talking about the attitudes of the of the my, of our neighbors and like what they're thinking. And clearly they're not getting the information that they need. I mean, I could name of other stuff is other. There's a man who said, I'm ready to move out. My I'm seeing all this awful stuff going on. And Helen and just gave a, a goodbye to getting, you. <laughs> not getting the information. That's right. That's yeah. an opportunity <laughs> for <laughs> education. And sorry, yeah, Sham, wants, Sham to wants to say something. <laughs> Since y'all talking about me, can I can I say something? Please. Uh, absolutely. Okay. First and foremost, you, you mentioned the word that many of your Upper West Siders feel as as though the people that you just uh, quoted feel, correct? That Yeah, that's what I said. I may be wrong, but that's what I said, yeah. Okay, so just think of it like this. They raised $150,000 to hire this lawyer, right? On our side, the Upper West Side raised $500,000. I think that's a testament if you want to measure it by the money support that there are a lot, there's just as many people on this in the same community that are in support of us. So now let me say this about the um, most of the stuff that you that they, they talk about. So Shams, wait a second, Shams, wait a second. I just want to understand, is this the Upper West Side Open Hearts? 
No, no. I mean, the $500,000 is the support for the Goddard Riverside program that was raised yes. to create a, um, a supplemental recreation program for the men at the Lucerne. Okay. So it was private donations to Goddard Riverside. Okay. All right, go ahead, Sham. Sorry. And and so, with, you know, just quickly with them, they want to offer us this, the community center so that we can have a place to go and set up program because of the space that's there and also provide us with uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner six days a week. So that's just showing that despite, you know, the, the other side raising 150,000 and stuff like that, there are so many people here that feel differently and would like to welcome us to the community and work, work with us. Um, so the other thing is specifically about the residents of, of the Lucerne, um, myself included. Project Renewal, um, is a, it, it, there are two shelters, the Kent, Kenton Hall and Third Street, receives men, men that are struggling with substance use disorder and mental illness. Now I can tell you that not everybody that is in this, in this shelter or in this hotel has those issues. Some do. And then the, um, there are many who are just working people who just go to work and stuff like that. So now the fact of us having substance use disorder or mental illness, when we talk about mental illness, I want to be clear because, you know, people get a stigma with mental illness and that's unsafe to project it like that because mental illness can be something as simply as depression. When you're going through the homeless system, when you're homeless, depression is definitely a byproduct of being homeless. And for that, I usually suggest that people get treatment for it because a lot of time it can lead to things like an increase in substance use, you know, and some substance, like in my case is alcohol. It can get out of hand due to the depression. So it's better for me to get treatment for both and Project Renewal is excellent at providing it. So what I see here in this, and one of the reasons we wanna stay is because we did take the time to put so much program, to be honest, that did not exist with the help of the community, which is unprecedented. And, and, and I think that it's working and in so much that it could be the model, despite the issues that took place and in the, in the beginning, despite the city not having the communication with the community, which was bad. I think that we can come up from that, sit at the same table and work this out in a way that benefits not just the residents, not just the project renewal, but it also benefits the community. Exactly. And I, I am concerned because I started out this program, you didn't hear it, about talking honestly about my own knee-jerk responses. And I was shocked at what I was thinking and feeling. And I want to change. And that's why we're doing, that's why I put this program together, because I'm selfish. I don't want to be that person. Corinne, you reach out in the neighborhood. You, um, you communicate not just to the men uh, who, are, who are trying to get their, their lives together. I'm, I'm sure they don't want to be, no, no one wants to be homeless. And you've made choices about how to communicate to them. But how do you communicate to those... Um, those violent grannies. What did we call them? That's before? what I've been trying to get a word in here. Yeah, I wanted grannies. to ask that question. How do we change the hearts? I was. I am mortified and ashamed of my fellow Upper West Siders. These these um, liberal 
Democrats, you know, who you argue and complain about everything else that's going on everywhere else, but, oh, no, don't put them in my neighborhood. I mean, it's ridiculous. So how do we change the hearts of these people? So I think they're, because I think that most people are generally good people and most people don't want to perpetuate harm onto others, what allows people to hold this inconsistent position is this mythology that you could send people away someplace better. It really is mythology. It's like the idea, it's like the the dog that goes to like, you know, the farm and, you know, the farm upstate or something, right? That you tell your kids that when the dog dies, right? That's what this mythology that's being woven is to say, well, we need to get them out of our neighborhood so they can get better services and better care. And we need to tell the truth that there is no farm upstate. There is no better place that people are going to go where they're going to get better services and better care. There's no better place in the Upper West Side. If you displace people, the reality is, is that they'll end up in worse, less safe shelters, probably unduly burdening black and brown neighborhoods with, you know, an unfair sort of percentage of homeless residents. And so if we want to address those issues, which we believe should be addressed, everybody should feel safe and comfortable in this neighborhood. And that extends to our temporary shelter neighbors, they should also feel safe and comfortable, we have to actually solve the problems. And so I think that we have to call out that disconnect to say, no, I'm sorry, you don't get to say that you both deeply care about the shelter residents, and you want to kick them out because kicking them out will not serve them. Instead, come with us and help us build something better because we are strong enough to do this. We can actually tackle these issues. And on that note, I have to actually get on a call with CB1 to do just what needs to, what should have been done in the beginning, which is talk to the people. Let them know that it's going to be okay. We're okay. So I have to, I totally apologize, but I have to do that to make sure we, if we do go downtown, we don't have a repeat of what happened before. So just having us engaged and communicating like this is very important. And please forgive me. If you need me again, I'm here. Well, thank you. Thank you, you, Shams. And thank you for being such a great advocate for the, for For, for, for yourself and and for all the, the men that you, uh, that you are live living with. with. Yeah. 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 Thank you. And also the community. I want to be in a safe community. Exactly. Too. Yes. Exactly. You're, yes. You're our neighbor. You're, yes. That's right. You're Thank an you. Upper West Sider like we are. We're proud to be Upper West Siders. Go to I, it. I love Go the to community. the community board one and let, let, let them know the good word. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. We just had just a, a, a one other. Do you want I, to wanted to, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to say yeah, something yeah, about ahead. this as well is that I actually found out about Open Hearts. Amanda, that we've mentioned several times, is a wonderful woman. I was in the Safer Streets Facebook group after I heard them on NPR. And I was trying to have an empathetic conversation with these people that were posting photos of people on the street, sleeping on benches, like dehumanizing these people. And I'm like, did you say hello to them? Did you find out where they live? Do you, did you like, because if someone connects with someone, it's impossible to hate them. Like if you connect with someone who is street homeless or the men of Lucerne or um, 
Like, you can't hate them because they're a great bunch of people. And, and the, the vilification of people that come into the Upper West Side, the photos I've seen, because I have, I have some street cred here, but <laughs> I'm like, these are not the men of the Lucerne that you're posting photos about. These are chronically street homeless people that should be reported to 311. Stop calling the police. And then the argument is, oh, 311 doesn't do anything. Yes, they do. They send out outreach teams, but because these people have been so traumatized through the system, it's trauma losing your housing and then entering the shelter system. Right. And then you're traumatized every time you're moved. You're traumatized if you're a victim of violence. You're trauma like there's pe- there's reasons these people do not accept shelter. I was going to say that that they don't want to go into the shelters because of how horrible they are. It sounds like exactly. I was lucky because I admitted I had a mental health concern and a substance abuse issue, and I got into a nice mica shelter. So what I'm saying is is these are humans that are having a human experience, and it's not. It's hard for some people and the trauma and the trust. What I wanted to get to is that every time the carpet gets pulled out from underneath you, it takes, it adds whatever time it took you to trust that program, double it. So if you took two months to trust the services of Project Renewal at Lucerne to start participating and that gets pulled out from underneath you, it's going to take you four months to accept services from anyone. And I'm not talking about service to project renewal. I'm talking about your medical doctor, the therapist, the grocery store, because you don't trust anyone around you because the moment you make that connection, I, I'm speaking from personal experience, the moment I made that connection and I lost my bed in the shelter, I did not want to go to the new soup kitchen and make relationships with these people at my new shelter. I did not want to go to the grocery store. I did not want to talk to my caseworker because you lose when you, you don't only lose a bed, you lose all the services associated with that bed when you're shuffled around a DHS. So how can we make sure that these men are not kicked out of this neighborhood? We need to have come out of the Upper West Side. Yes, yes. I'm going to have to ask that because that's her. I I can talk as a systemic issue and how to fix the system. But I think Corinne should, like, Corinne is working like she is Miss Lucerne. She is the grandma of the men of the Lucerne. (laughs) We are, you know, we are working so hard on so many channels, but ultimately this was the mayor's call and it was the wrong call. It was a call to say, instead of working with the community to fix something and to put in place something that really works and solve problems on a systemic level, I'm just gonna try moving again. And you just heard they were moved from the congregate shelter to the Washington Jefferson and then people complained there, they were moved to the Lucerne, people complained there, let's move them to Wall Street. How is that gonna solve anything, right? And so this is the mayor's call and the mayor needs to Get a understand backbone. that, you know, homeless individuals deserve dignity and stability and community care. And with those things, they will become wonderful neighbors and our allies in building a safe and inclusive community. You know, um, 
the homeless hero has said, you know, when people feel respected and welcome in a community, they in turn want to honor and respect that community. And that's why, you know, what we have done in building relationships with the Lucerne has completely changed that environment in terms of the neighborhood shelter relationship. And we can do more of that and we can, and this Goddard program can get implemented, but the mayor needs to make the call to, to call this off. Okay. So how do we get the mayor to do that? We get a new mayor. <laughs> I, you know, I've heard that what works is, you know, starting a GoFundMe to hire a lawyer. <laughs> that seems to be how you get his ear because, you know, that's who he listened to rather than listening to the experts, the service providers, the city council people who've been working on issues of homelessness, the public advocate, you know, actually pretty much every other elected official in this city is against this decision and has stood with us at, you know, press conferences decrying this decision. Um, every Manhattan borough president candidate has come out against this decision in addition to the current Manhattan borough president gail brewer um and somehow the mayor decides to listen to randy mastro and so this is it needs to be called out that there is no problem that's being solved by this move and i think that's again like as long as we let that mythology sustain that there's something that's helpful about this people can feel okay about kind of serving their own self-interest but they don't feel bad it needs to be called out that what is happening is you are needlessly traumatizing and destabilizing a vulnerable population to not actually address any issues, but rather just, you know, play a merry-go-round around the city. This is a narrative that we need to... Go ahead, I'm sorry I had to jump, and now I have to jump formally. So thank you all for having me on. Keep talking. This is the right discussion. No, we we Um, want to continue. Uh, Barcrow Radio is committing to doing a series on the homeless, and maybe we can pull you back in again. Um, I'm, I'm a, always here for you, Alan. Thank you, Helen. That's great. <laughs> all right. Great. Talk thank to you all soon. They stay well. Uh, again, thank you to Helen Rosenthal of uh, District 6. This needs to be talked about. I wish we, I wish Barcrow Radio had the ear of every Upper West Sider so that they can start hearing what's really going on and not reacting to the fear in their heart, which is expressed by anger. Um, the fear is, is meaningless. You have, you have shown that to us. And I thank the homeless hero. And I, I thank you, uh, Josh Parkin and Corinne Lowe for, for helping us to start opening up our eyes to the true situation that we're in. And we're not in a bad situation. We're, gosh darn it, we're helping our neighbors. How, how blessed could we be? And that's what gives life true meaning, right? Is opportunities, you know, for service and for engagement. And that's what, you know, that's why we called ourselves the Open Hearts Initiative, because we said, if you approach this, instead of with that, you know, knee-jerk, fearful reaction, if you approach it with an open heart, you'll see that your community can only be enriched by opening it to welcome those less fortunate. Let's get that word out. Yes. So if our listeners want to volunteer, want to find out more about the organization, um, either either contribute. Help New York NYC or Upper West Side Open. Where Park. should they go? What? If they want to come and help us out at Help NYC and in turn help um, Upper West Side Open Hearts in some way, uh, <clears throat> Help NYC's website is helpnyc.info. And you can find Help NYC anywhere on the internet and social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Our handle on all the social media channels are at we help NYC. 
And we are uwsopenhearts.org or at UWS Open Hearts on all social media. And we welcome people getting involved and you know coming and volunteering at our events. And we think that when you build real relationships with shelter residents, you'll see that there's nothing to be afraid of. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you both. The pandemic has created a situation in which each of us must care for our neighbors so that we can all be safe. Placing 283 men in the Lucerne Hotel on the Upper West Side of Manhattan allows for the physical distancing that can slow down the virus from spreading in an otherwise exposed population of homeless people. But many of our neighbors are crying out, do not house these people in my neighborhood. But as it turns out, maybe many more are saying, it's okay, open hearts. Over the coming months, Bar Crawl Radio Podcast will commit to several future conversations with politicians, spiritual and mental health experts, sociologists, Upper West Side neighbors, and the men and women who are living without permanent shelter. There are several community organizations working to help our homeless neighbors. We want to talk with Project Renewal and those in the outreach programs at Goddard Riverside and others. It is our goal to raise awareness of the problem of finding humane solutions that work for the entire community. And we want to thank Corinne Lowe of Upper West Side Hearts, Joshua Parkin of NYC Help, The Homeless Hero, and Helen Rosenthal of District 6 for being with us today. And we hope all of our neighbors stay safe and, and well. You can contact Rebecca McCain or me, Alan Winson, at barcrawlradio at gmail.com. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.